to the Enneagram journey. We have a couple of questions today that I'm going to respond to, and I think the second one is going to lead us uh, probably through the rest of this episode. Joel's with me. He's always a good helper with questions and has a lot to contribute, so you'll be hearing from both of us, I hope. Hey, Suzanne. I love your books and I love your podcast. Thank you so much for the ways you've impacted my life. I'm a three on the Enneagram and I have a nagging question. Why is it so hard for me to trust people enough to delegate and how do I get over it? So I'm a solopreneur, meaning I'm a solo entrepreneur and I really need to hire some things out. But so often people just do poor work or just flake out and I can't get past feeling like it would be better to do everything myself, even though I know I can't actually do it all myself. My standards aren't all that high. I mean, I want things done well, but I'm not asking for perfection. And I'm fine delegating unimportant things like cleaning the house or landscaping. But when when it comes to something that I see as important, well, I just don't know how to find people that I can trust. Thank you so much. Hi, Julie. Thank you for the question. It's really a good one. I want to start by talking just a little bit about the difference in threes and ones in case people listening think, oh, I do that, but I thought I was a one. So uh, you did a good job with differentiating the two. I just want to say that the difference maybe is that you want to be the best and ones need things to be perfect. And you cut corners and ones don't cut corners. So let's begin to unpackage the things that you said, starting with why is it so hard for me to delegate? You know, one of the things I've learned as I've been teaching the Enneagram for the last 25 years is that there's only one number on the Enneagram that likes group projects. And I think for uh, aggressive numbers, anything that involves a group in order to get something done becomes the equivalent of a group project. It's like you have to depend on other people to do their part. And when you want so much to succeed and when you want to be the best and when you identify your own value by whether or not you're successful, it makes sense. It would be really hard to let somebody else participate in that. You can't go around afterwards and say, it would have been successful if I'd done that part, but I didn't do it. So that's why it didn't work out. I think there's a lot of energy for you in moving forward and you probably multitask well and I would imagine you move pretty fast. And generally, people we work with and do projects with either don't move at the same speed that we do or they don't uh, do things in the same order that we would do them. There's a, a lot going on around processes for threes You know, threes like to get everything lined out and then march through it. And I chose the word march intentionally. And other numbers just slow you down. They they tend to do that. So the question you have to ask yourself is, what can I learn that has value by allowing other people to participate working on things with me with what they bring as their gifts and as their deficits? with what they have to offer that I wouldn't have seen or wouldn't have known to contribute. And then I think you just wrap your arms around the fact that it's going to be hard. It's, it's going to be hard every time. So I, I wouldn't try to overcome it being hard. I'd try to accommodate the fact that it's hard. Is that like so many other things 
it just takes time. Once you do it once, it's easier the second time. Then it's easier the next time. My experience is that it's easier each time until it fails because of somebody else. And then you like start over. And that's where the rubber hits the road. That's it's like, right. Do you keep trusting it yeah. or are you going to go ahead and take go it all, all back. back to right. can't give anybody anything? That's right. That's right. But I just want you to keep distinguishing that it's not because you need it to be perfect. It's because you need to win. You need to be the best. And second place really doesn't work for you. Another thing, Julie, is that um, I think you ought to tell people it's hard for you to delegate. The people that you're delegating to, I think you ought to start off by saying, I'm working really hard in my own life to learn to do this, and I'm not very good at it yet, and I'm, I'm really trying and working hard and um, so be understanding and offer me some grace if I don't get it right or if I'm impatient or if I need uh, you to do things that you don't yet know how to do or haven't done before. Sometimes if you set the table by naming the problems, then if the problems arise, they're not such a big problem. That has come up a few times in recent things that I've heard you say in a conversation that we had uh, just earlier today that goes unnoticed letting other people know your expectations from this. So with uh, a conversation that you had, we had earlier, I said to you, I'm going to tell you all these things. I don't want any back. And then I, I just want you to hear it. And then after we talked it out a little bit, because of course you <laughs> didn't let me have that. Did you notice that I tried? You did. You did. You said, I'm only going to give you a little bit of feedback. There you go. But you said, because I explained myself afterwards what mm -hmm. it is that I thought would happen, et cetera. And you said, if you tell me up front not to get, that you are not looking for me to say these things, mm -hmm. then we can have a conversation that is not. And I uh, won't say those things. Yeah. yeah. And then and something happened this past weekend where you said you just have to, in, in relationships, in conversations, mm -hmm. in, um, I forget the specific scenario that was given at the workshop. But it was, you need to give them the the expectation of what you want what the outcome you're willing to, be. to do, yeah. yeah, and what you're not willing to do. Yeah. And I think that people, I make a lot of assumptions that I shouldn't make both good and bad. That I assume that other people will do something, or that they won't do something, or that this need will be met, so I don't need to do it, or this need for sure won't be met. Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about how expectations are resentment waiting to happen. I think there's another level to that, that by making your expectations uh, transparent and coming forth with it in the beginning, that, that will also eliminate a lot of resentment. I think we could rename expectations desires in the way that you just used it. Yes, yes. I don't think people let other people know their desires. That's right. And so if you tell me, that you want to tell me something because you want me to have the information, but you don't want me to respond. That's one level of you and I doing that work, and we've done it for a long time. But another level is I want to talk to you about something, and I'd kind of like to have your feedback on this part, but here are three things that it doesn't help me if you say them. So please don't say them. And I think for three, sevens, and eights, letting other people know your desires in this scenario for Julie, letting whoever it is that she's going to contract things out to, that these are my desires, here's the stuff, 
and like, and all the other things that you said of this is my, maybe how I'll behave. Don't take it that way, yeah. please. And then it, everything's out on the table. Right. And I, I think everything being on the table actually eliminates expectation because expectations come from this magical place of what you want to happen. Expectations are kind of a made up reality. Exactly. Exactly. And then when they aren't met, the other person may not even have known your made up reality, right? You have a first grader at your house and I watch you with her and you tell her what you expect and she pretty much delivers. And I figure if a first grader can do it, adults can do it. We just don't tell people what we need or what we want. So you know that in our family, when I'm going to have a conversation with somebody that I think might be conflictual, I often start with, I don't, I don't want this to cost us anything. I'm not sure we're going to agree, but there's some things I feel like I need to say. And then I, I want us to be fine after I say them. And generally, that's what I get is we're fine after I say them. And I don't know that we would be if I didn't. So I, I talk a lot about there are a lot of things in life you have to set the table for. There, there are a lot of meals and conversations we're going to have that you have to set the table for. And I think how you set the table often determines the outcome, often determines the outcome. And I, I think people tend to lead with their strengths instead of their weaknesses in group interaction, and I think that's a mistake. So if I, 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 I'm, I feel sure Julie will walk in and say, you know, here are the strengths I have, but this is a weakness for me because she said it here when she sent her question in. And I think when you name your weakness, it changes the level of the conversation. Because if you don't name it, then the other people walk away and say, she just doesn't want us to help. She doesn't trust anybody to do it but her. She does all that. But once you name it, that that's gone. That's not on the table anymore. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't respond well when another person shows some vulnerability. Yeah. Nothing ever bad comes from that, does yeah. When you come in with, I have all the answers and we're going to do it my way, you've already lost the most important thing. You may win the battle, but you won't win the war that way. All right. Thank you, Julie. Uh, the next question is from Christine. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you so much for your work on the Enneagram and sharing it through your new podcast. It's been really meaningful to listen to your latest episodes. I find myself today curious and would love your feedback and opinion on how trauma affects the different Enneagram types. Specifically, I am a six, and I'm curious how past childhood trauma might affect me in my present. I've done a lot of personal work to grow through the pain of those experiences, but I'm wondering if there might be any lingering pockets that maybe I'm functioning out of but haven't yet been aware of. Any insight you have on this would be super helpful. Thank you again. Hi, Christine. That's such an important question. Thank you for asking, and thank you for asking it in this context so that I could talk about it a little while for all of us. Trauma is um, different from wounding. Wounding is inevitable. We all experience wounding in childhood, and actually it's all of that wounding that uh, determines how we live out our genetic predisposition to be the numbers that we are. Trauma occurs on a deeper level and it um, 
actually causes us to go really deep into excess in our number. So if you think of that at any given time in our number, we can be healthy or average or unhealthy or in excess. Then what happens to us when we experience trauma is our habitual, patterned, predictable response is excess in our number. Lots of people who experience trauma think they become another number. And all I can say is that sometimes when people experience trauma, they stop short of going deep in excess in their number and make that organic move or that intuitive move to the number that they go to in stress. Once you uh, fall, I think is the best word, into excess in your number, it just takes you longer to get back to average. It takes you longer to let go of excess in your behavior. It just takes you longer to get back to a place that's level from which you move up into healthy and sometimes down into unhealthy, and we all do that. And if you are triggered because of your trauma and you you start to fall again into excess, you'll be more and more aware of it as it happens, but it takes time to stop the fall. I was, um, I experienced a lot of trauma as a foreign exchange student when I was 16. And I didn't know the Enneagram then, of course, so I've, I've come to use a lot of this language by looking back and by dealing with other people who are experiencing trauma. So since you're a six on the Enneagram, that means that the way you're put together on any given day, you already have anxiety that you're struggling with. And the biggest problem, I think, as a, you know, I'm not a clinician, so I'm an Enneagram master teacher, and I'm old, but I'm not a clinician. And what I think the biggest concern is for sixes that experience trauma, once they've had a certain level of counseling and therapy and care, is that it exacerbates the reality that they don't trust themselves. And I find sixes to be so trustworthy. So it's always disturbing to me to be around sixes, recognizing again and again and again, six after six, that they don't trust themselves. And trauma tends to cause you to trust yourself even less. And that certainly gets lost when you tumble down into excess in your number. So I have some suggestions for what might be helpful in that. And that would be when you're having a really great day, write down all the reasons that you should trust you and then put them on an index card somewhere or a poster board if there are that many so that you can get it out when you kind of start that fall and you get triggered and you don't trust yourself because all the goodness is going to begin when you say, I'm good and I'm smart and I know what to do and I can take care of myself. And the fact that I was unable to care for myself then is about somebody else. It's not about me. And then what you watch for is overdoing because sixes go to three in stress. 
And, you know, you can go the high side of three or the low side of three. So you can choose the high side of three where you're going to be mindful of what is the best thing to do for you and for the situation. And you're going to be aware that you have all the gifts and graces that you need to be successful in doing that. But if you're not careful because you're so stressed, on the low side of three, it's just manic doing. So you just start doing and doing. And anytime any of us are into manic activity, we make mistakes. And when that happens to you, then you beat up on yourself again. And that doesn't help the whole process. So you stop and you say, wait, I'm good. And I got this and I know how to handle it. I've done it before. And then you plan what you're going to do next. Aware that you've got the energy for doing. You quickly... That's a big word in this, quickly. Make a plan. My next step is this, and the step after that is going to be this. And then, having decided which steps you're going to take, you do things differently than you normally do them. You said each number goes into excess of their number in that time of trauma. And so with sixes, their main issue at that time is their anxiety and their self-doubt. Uh, so can you speak to each of the nine anagram numbers, six is already done, as to what that looks like and then how to, how to help them in those times and to what, what to watch for? How good of Christine to open the door for us to be able to have this conversation. To make sure that everybody understands, we probably operate mostly in the top half of average most of the time in our number. Average to the top half of average. And every once in a while we just have a shining moment where we're really healthy. But I often say, if you think you're healthy all the time, then you're for sure unhealthy. And we need to just remember that there's a lot of movement up and down between healthy and average and average and unhealthy. So um, I'm just going to run through the numbers. And I normally start with eight. So I'm going to start there because that is comforting for me. Eights have... Um, one basic fear, and that's of being betrayed. Um, they kind of think other people are going to try to harm them or control them in some way. And trust is hard for them to come by. And eights go to five when they're stressed, which means that if they can stop themselves, a good thing happens. But if they can't, if they just tumble down through and past unhealthy into excess in their numbers... Eights are so aggressive when they're in excess in their number that almost everybody backs up and nobody tells them the truth and people don't try to stop them. They just back up and wait until eights are uh, able to move themselves to a different space, which seems awfully unfair to me, actually. So if, as an eight, you can catch yourself... When you are tumbling, before you begin to just be abusive to other people, then you can be mindful of the two choices you have in stress in relationship to your move to five. If you go to the high side of five, that means that you will tell everybody that's involved that you're going to take a break and that you'll be back and uh, you might be back in five minutes, you might be back tomorrow, but you let people know that you're not going away for good. And then you pull back and you 
reassess what's happening. You look at your part in things. You look objectively at what other people have said and done. And you gain some perspective that you use for re-entry into the situation. And then when you re-enter, you do it from a place of leadership that is dependable as opposed to leadership that is demanding. All right, and just to reset for everybody, this might just be because I love the radio and the ticket. The question is around trauma and how people fall back into their uh, the personality that they went to, their, their space, when they experienced the trauma throughout their lives. Uh, Christine's words were pockets of trauma, and Suzanne's... Uh, explanation is that people go into the excess of their number when they experience trauma. And this is, these are tools on how to get out of that space for every number. Thank you. Nines. When nines experience trauma, they hibernate and they lose any sense of their own value. And part of the problem here is that they have childhood messages that really work against them unless they're doing really well. Childhood messages come from the work of Rizzo and Hudson, and it's so good. And the unconscious message for nines is it's not okay to assert yourself. And the lost message, meaning the message nines needed to hear but didn't hear, is your presence matters. And so when nines experience trauma, they usually don't assert themselves because that's a mantra that they live with all the time. And they don't think they matter after a traumatic experience. So that's a pretty isolating place. And when they fall back into those pockets of trauma, they fall back into insignificance. So it's real important that you learn to catch yourself before you do that. And if you catch yourself in the fall toward the pockets, as Christine so aptly defined them, then you'll remember that you actually intuitively go to six when you feel stressed. And you know the good thing about sixes is they look at details, they ask questions, they're concerned about the common good, and that includes what's good for them and what's good for other people. And they're aware that there's some things in life you should be leery of, that, that the goal is not to trust everybody and everything, that sometimes there's danger and you need to be aware of that. And that reality, that move to six from nine, creates kind of a, a method for being more, more secure in the future. It's a really good thing. I love the Enneagram so much, and I think one of the reasons I love it so much is because wherever you follow a line on the Enneagram, it takes you somewhere that will help you. Doesn't matter where it is. Okay, uh, ones. Ones um, essentially take responsibility at least within themselves for every bad thing that happens. And because I'm in the 891 triad right now, it might be important to point out that 
These are people who are all very concerned about blame. Eights, nines, and ones want to know whose fault things are and who caused this to happen and uh, who's to blame. So ones intuitively see everything they did wrong as opposed to the things that they were able to do correctly or right. And after trauma, ones generally come away believing that the trauma was their fault, their inadequate response to trauma is their fault, their adequate responses to trauma are not likely to last, and that they're bad. They just arrive on the planet believing that they're bad and they have to work against that for all of their lives. So because of the goodness of the way all of this mystical system works, when they're stressed, ones go to four. And fours, uh, a four energy can accommodate tragedy better than any other number. So it's almost the opposite of one in accommodating tragedy. And four energy can bear witness to pain. And if a one is able to bear witness to their own pain, then they can begin to let go of it. They can loosen their grip on all the things that they think they did wrong. And if you can learn before you fall again back into those pockets, if you can learn to kind of breathe and take in for yourself what you've learned from times when you've been in stress and you've responded intuitively with four behavior, then you'll find creative solutions to what you're struggling with. You'll find that the pain is universal. Everybody has it. You'll find lots of good things that you need in that space. Can you give a practice? So the, the answer is, this is what needs to happen. How can a one facilitate that to occur? My experience over the years with ones is that once they learn to journal, they can work out a lot on paper. It's, um, it, I, th I think it, it's almost a spiritual gift of some kind, maybe, because ones don't like to journal, of course, because they need everything to be perfect and they want to say the right thing. And what if somebody sees my journal someday? And how can I do this and have it be correct and all of that? But once they work past that, then they can problem solve journaling. And I think it's because ones get to a point where they no longer want to write down what the critic says. They, that inner voice of theirs that's so awful. They want to write down what they are thinking and what they're feeling. And I hope ultimately what they know to be true. So a good practice is just to start journaling. And I, I think you can journal yourself to a better place. But you would need a journaling practice before you fall down into one of those pockets because you're triggered by something that happens in the culture, in your job, or in the world. As we begin to talk about twos, threes, and fours, I'm reminded that I think one of the most important ideas for us all to keep in mind is that you cannot take care of yourself without the number you go to in stress. That is behavior that you absolutely need. And I'm giving examples of that, that people can, you know, sometimes in a workshop I say, I want you to wear this out of here. I want people to wear out what they learn about their uh, stress number 
So two goes to eight. And I've spent a lot of time there over the years, and I've experienced trauma. And it is easiest for me to understand how I take care of myself in eight by looking back at how I took my care of myself when I experienced significant trauma. It's a part of yourself, I think, if you're a two moving to eight, that is so foreign because it's all about your relationship with you instead of about your relationship with other people. So when twos start to fall into pockets that are reminiscent of and representative of trauma they've experienced, my guess would be a very high percentage of the time once they fall, they take responsibility for everything and they think the whole thing is their fault. Everything that happened is their fault. Nobody's to blame but them. And it would take a strong number like eight for you to stop. Stop doing that and for you to keep yourself from doing it by remembering that you're responsible for decisions that you make and you can make decisions on your own behalf that help you to take care of yourself. So when you start that tumble into excess in your number where you want to please everybody, you want everybody to love you, you want everybody to understand you, just stop and recognize that the person that you need to love and care for you in that tumble is you. And the way you're going to do that is by backing up and putting feelings in their place and thinking. And you're just going to think and think and think until you think things through to a reasonable place. Is reactive behavior for twos to automatically blame themselves? Yes, automatically, every time. All right, and so now we're on to threes. You know, let's start with the question, how... Are you successful during trauma? This uh, a similar question that came up recently, or in the past year, I should say, I think it was, when all the flooding hit here in Texas. Mm-hmm. And it was, how are you successful in this, in handling this terrible time? Right. And everything has two sides, and that question has two sides. I think the problem with asking yourself how you can be successful is that it increases the untruth that you're in control. In trauma, we're not in control. And um, when you start to tumble back into feelings that you had in a traumatic experience, ways that you saw yourself, A three's immediate response is, how can I control this? How can I reshape this and reshape myself so that it's something different? And that's the wrong path to take. And so the Enneagram's put together in a way where threes go to nine in stress. And what nines do when there is something serious and important happening is they stop. They don't just keep moving no matter what, doing the same old thing they've always done. They stop, and they evaluate what needs to be done, and then they move cautiously. 
because they recognize that it takes a long time to undo or change a big thing. And so I think if threes can recognize that the thing they need to do first is not control what's happening, but they need to stop and not rely on old plans, but make a new plan that takes into consideration that they're in a new place and a new time. It's not, it's not like it was when the trauma first occurred. It's a new day and a new thing, so it requires a new response. And nine energy will really help you with that. It's how you take care of yourself. And on to fours. I think young fours believe that their ability to hold pain or bear witness to it or their ability to accommodate tragedy is what makes them special. And that's very dangerous in relationship to trauma because fours can easily get into a pattern of believing that their trauma is what makes them special. That being a victim is what explains them to other people. So I think fours have to work harder to avoid the pockets than almost any other number because of their inclination to kind of fall in the pocket and believe that there's something there that will help them in relationship with other people. Is there something to look at it from the other side? So if you're a young four, so in the people experience trauma all throughout their lives. Right. Yeah. The example that Christine had was as a child. Right. So you're young four, you experience trauma, uh, growing up, you, you get out of it. You get to healthier space. It's over. Is there something that they can grab onto to kind of as a preventative from going into the pocket instead of, it seems like it would be harder since it is harder for them to come out of the pocket. What can they do to not go into it? That's really good. And the answer is focus on other people. Fours are almost always focused inward and they go to two in stress. And then in two, they're focused outward. And what they need to do when they start to feel, to be, when they're triggered or they start to feel all of that kind of come up inside them, you know, everybody feels trauma in their body first. That's a warning that it's coming. That's a warning that you're falling in one of the pockets is that it's a bodily warning and it's different for all of us, but we all know it when we feel it. One of the go-to things of uh, AA is when you're feeling like using to go help someone. Right. Just that's the immediately go do that. Yeah, that's it. And so I think uh, fours have to f- focus on other people as quickly as they can and then involve themselves with someone else focused on what's important to them, the other person, not on what's important to the four. And finding value uh, in being the victor as opposed to being the victim. And after we go through all the numbers, I want to speak to that a little more. You know, um, it's usually a surprise to fives for me to really kind of get serious with them about the fact that you can't work out everything in your head. And it's interesting that we just talked about bodily responses to trauma because fives try to work out all problems in their heads. They, they try to think through 
all their problems. Is the snap response, no, you can't think everything yeah. through your head. <laughs> exactly. That's it. That That's what they're thinking. Yeah, I'm sad for you that you can't do that, Suzanne, but I actually can. So I think fives try to evaluate and make sense of and understand traumatic experiences. And they usually defy all of that. And fives often want to gather information about trauma and traumatic experiences, which um, really could be bad. It could be good, but it could be bad too. And so I, I believe that when fives start to tumble down into remembering trauma or uh, when they start to, f- to feel connected to that trauma in some way, one of the best things they can do is rely on the reality that fives go to seven in stress. I, I think that's one of the craziest moves on the Enneagram. And it is um, a, a moment that is so expansive for fives because fives tend to re-examine things, but they seldom reframe them. And reframing is not always bad. No, it's not. Oh, yeah, well. Ridiculous question. If someone were to illustrate what going to your number in stress, in a time of trauma looks like. Would it be, as an example, a five, a seven saying to a five, hey, how about how about we do look together. To, out together? Let's do it like this and give my way a try here. Is that the same for, if you, if you had to think of it and imagine it that way, is that fair? Is that accurate? Here's what I do. I think of the female eights that I know. And how they would... And I say to myself, how would Joey handle this? How would Nadia handle this? That's what I do. I, I literally say it out loud to myself. And it's it gets me there pretty quick. It's a, it's a very helpful thing. The other thing I thought you were going to ask, so I want to respond to, is... When I use the language go-to, what I really mean is you take on behavior. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just the... It's just the language that works the best. It. That's right. That's right. You know, I, I, for one, have never thought of that. Like, I don't have any... I go to one in stress. Yeah. And I've never thought, talk to talk to Chase about yeah. this. Yep. And because I can get that perspective. And That's it. possibly... A healthier perspective if I'm in the, going to the low side and so on. Yeah. Someone else who's not stressed out in that moment or not in the low side of their number, hopefully, can give a fresh perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I, I think uh, a five, would it would be hard for a five to pick up the phone or get on their laptop and contact a seven. I, I would encourage that. But if you can't do that, then... I think a five can stop and use thinking to say, how can I reframe this into something more manageable? And I think it works. Uh, All right. We already covered sixes and finally sevens. You've heard me say before that I think we 
all the rest of us don't really want sevens to get better, to get healthier, to be deeper, to um, change anyway. And I think that's particularly dangerous in relationship to trauma. Because you know, as a seven, that you're loaded up with defense mechanisms. You got more than other numbers do. And you know that you can reframe any negative into a positive. And reframing trauma buries it. But it doesn't get rid of it, and it doesn't address it, and it doesn't control it, and it doesn't make it any better. So before you make a move, intentional or otherwise, toward a one, I think you have to have some kind of mantra that you use that includes let it be what it is. Let it be what it is before you try to fix it. You say to people in relationship with sevens when there's a problem, the first step is convincing or convincing a seven that there is a problem. That's right. And it's the same with trauma, except yeah. without someone else to point that out. Yeah. Yeah. You got you, you to gotta let it be what it is. And then instead of reframing, you do something about it, which is what you get from once. And you do it in an orderly fashion. So there's not a, I'm going to skip steps one, two, and three, because one energy doesn't do that. One energy does everything in order, every step correctly. It's thorough. Yeah. It's very thorough. I think uh, calling a one would be real smart, really smart. I think for any of us to contact the number we go to in stress when we're experiencing pockets of trauma is a really really good idea. What precedes that for every number is stop. Stop. And if you have some kind of contemplative practice, you'll be able to stop. You know, uh, this morning, uh, the system, the, the security system that we have on the house, because we got some new windows, we had those people come out. And the guy who came got to talking to dad and uh, he said, you know, uh, I used to struggle with anxiety. I, I, I had such bad anxiety that I took five pills a day. And he said, I learned how to do contemplative prayer. I learned how to do a sit. I'm off all medication. And it just reminded me I need to talk about that more than I do because contemplative practices create a space within all of us where we can stop and the tumble, and I think Christine used the word tumble. The tumble down, the tumble into the pockets, is, requires that first we stop and then apply some of the things that we've talked about here. And everybody who's experienced trauma needs a therapist, and I'm not one. So hold loosely anything that I suggest. You said the first thing always is to stop. We've been talking about that recently. Uh, over the past few weeks on the difference between active versus reactive behavior. Mm -hmm. And without stopping, it'll always be reactive. That's right. Always. And reactive is often followed by regret. As we close today, I want to thank Christine for her vulnerability again. I 
love days like today where something happens to one of us that causes a question, that requires a response, or that asks for a response, and then it ends up being helpful to all of us. And I think um, when we talk about victims and victors, one of the things that we need to be mindful of is that it's always good to grab a friend and tell your story, your trauma or your story, with you as the victim. But then you can always turn right around and tell the same story with you as the victor. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solvay Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.